in uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, if you want to turn there, which if you're using a Bible on the seat, I think is around 874, page 874. Today we're going to be uh, dealing with a subject, uh, a Christian living subject, um, sexual ethics, our sexuality, and um, oftentimes when you start talking this way, I'm going to just share with you from my own mind, this question would be at the forefront, which is how far is too far? That was my, uh, like my pre-married brain. How far is too far? And in this subject, uh, we often end up with kind of a, a matrix of rules of, is this appropriate? Is that not appropriate? Can I do that? Can I do that? And I, I kind of like us to think about that as a fence line, okay? A fen- fence line that describes proper behavior. Which, fence lines serve a purpose, and I'm, so I'm, I'm not here to say that it's not, nice, it's not helpful to outline the problem. I will say this, I am, I do consider myself to be um, a professional in fence lines. Uh, Though mine fences never work. So I'll give you an example. We used to have a dog, and this dog was a rotten dog. It was worthless. And I am so glad he's no longer with us. But he was a breakout artist. He was this jerky breakout artist. And so you would be bringing in the groceries and he'd be like lounging, like nothing's going on. The moment you turned his back with that door open, he's gone. He's gone for a half hour. So we got one of those. We couldn't afford the fence line you bury, the electric fence line you bury. We, had it, we got one of those emanating electric fence lines where it's just this... this machine that emanates electricity throughout your whole house and at a certain range it zaps the dog and we turn that baby all the way up <laughs> to 11 and we were going to singe that creature and then I had to like walk around I, I liked him okay but we had to walk around the yard and put those little flags in the ground to train the dog so that it doesn't accidentally run and hit this threshold and but when these, these emanators, because you have like refrigerators and heaters, sometimes there's a, the cone of coverage is irregular, and sometimes you can even get a gap of coverage. And so I put all the flags with my tester down, and it turned out I had about 18 inches of a gap where there was no coverage. So I did the flags like I was told, and then I leashed up the dog like I was told, and I walked him around with a little beeper to warn him like I was told, and he... You know, here's the whole yard, and he kind of learned it. And when I thought he had learned it, I took the chain off. And I am telling you, in like two seconds, he went straight to that 18-inch gap and disappeared. (laughs) And that's me in fence lines. I'm a professional. I'm a professional failure at fence lines. We have, uh, where we live now, we have ponies. They've broken out. We've had horses. They've broken out. I have been eating lunch in my kitchen looked out my window and seen a horse looking back at me. (laughs) 
I can't, we've had pigs, they've broken out. Every, every creature we've ever bred has broken out of whatever fence line I've ever built. And so I hope you will understand if I'm wary of the value of a fence line when it deals with anything important and when I generally operate with the notion of if something wants to break out, the fence line will not keep them. And that's going to affect us today as we begin to talk about uh, holy living, life in Christ. And we hit real topics like our sexual ethics and how far is too far. Last week, or I should just give a little summary of where we've been, and we've been walking through the basic faith that's represented in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Paul's been preaching a pretty basic message. doesn't mean it's easy, but it is not overly complicated. And uh, the message he is summarized, by the way, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. This is where he says, uh, How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the heart of the basic message of the faith. Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. He is living and with God in heaven and will return. And um, we, we don't simply believe in him. We turn from our idolatry to follow him. In Acts 17, the ministry of Paul in among the Thessalonians was recorded, and here's, here's how his message to them was uh, recorded. It said, And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them in the Scriptures, expl explaining and proving that it is necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, which is another way of saying Savior. He's our Savior. So we've spent several weeks kind of coming around that idea of that's the message and that the message is what saves. You adopting this truth into your life uh, in a way that changes your disposition towards God is how we are saved by the Lord. In chapters 2 and 3 uh, of this letter sort of uh, describe how Paul lent credibility to the message and did not get in the way of the message. So he says, hey, we didn't come with the word only. We came in power and in spirit and in full conviction. In other words, our life, and you saw when we were here how a credibility was given to the message of Jesus Christ. And then the next section follows. He describes how he and Paul and Silas, uh, they didn't get in the way of the message with the words that they said. They didn't, they didn't manipulate. They didn't spin off wrong ideas, they weren't caught up on menial things, but they gave the message and then the manner of their life didn't get in the way. You can imagine, and as many of you have maybe even experienced, being in a religious climate where like either a spiritual leader or a pastor or someone like that is, their life is so problematic that you hearing the real message of Jesus becomes very difficult, very complicated. What Paul is saying here, I haven't done that to you. I got out of the way 
so that you could be confronted by the love of Jesus for you. And he says, and I, I rejoice to say you, you caught Christ. Like, you got it. You got the word, and even though we were rent and stripped away from you after mere weeks of being with you, Paul was only with them for a few weeks, after being pulled away from you, because you got Jesus Christ, you were able to stand in your faith. That's what the letter says here. Is they stood in their faith in the midst of great hardship, not because Paul was with them, because he wasn't. Not because they had a lot of money, because they didn't. Not because they, they marshaled their weapons and rose up in rebellion, because they didn't. Not because they had great intellect or because they had great influence. They, they survived because they had faith in Christ. Which is the same faith that you and I have. When all this brings us to today. Today, we're, we're turning a page in the letter from what is the message of Jesus to how do we live this life out? How do we take this message and make it meet the life we have right now? And Paul's going to use a great classic example for all people, which is uh, sex, to deal with this. So let's go ahead and look at uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. And by the way, these are set-up verses, but I actually think some of the best teaching is in these set-up verses. So I think we'll be ready to think well when we get to the subject by how we deal with the setup. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul says, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And I'll, I'll stop there. He starts with, in the ESV it says, finally. That's not my favorite uh, translation. That Some translations have additionally. Other translations might say, as for other matters, which gets a little closer to it. Paul has a common technique, it's happening here, where the first part of his correspondence is dealing with the centrality of the faith. Let's make sure we have the faith in Jesus Christ figured out. And then he turns the page and goes to life in Jesus Christ figured out. And that's what he's doing now. So when you say finally, it makes me feel like it's sort of stapled to the back of the gospel. And I, I don't think that's really the meaning here. It's more like, now then. Now that we have that clear, let's talk about this. That's more to the heart of what's happening. Paul's saying, now then. In light of what Jesus has done for us, let's talk. And the next thing he says is, I ask you and urge you. We ask you and urge you. Which, that is actually an unusual couplet. It's sort of a, a lot of emphasis Paul is strenuously pushing and exhorting them right now in their life in the Lord. Okay? In other words, what he has to say now, it's not kind of important. You know, like as a child's going off to college and you like holler to them, don't forget to wear your raincoat. It's not that. Okay? You don't ask and urge them to do that. It's, what he's saying is, 
What I'm about to tell you is imminently practical, vital and life-giving, life-saving even. Okay? I'm asking and urging you. And he's going to be talking about how we live in Jesus Christ. In other, way, in other words, how we walk in the Lord okay, is just as important as what you think about Jesus and your salvation. Our life is not simply waiting for Jesus to return from heaven. I know that's what it says in chapter 1, verse 10, that we await his return from heaven. But right before it, it says, we turn to, from idols to serve the living and true God. The, to serve the living and true God. So there's this, this imminently practical part of the faith that matters to us now that Paul is really pushing. Hey, it's very important that you remember this. And then he says this. As you have received it already. That's what he said. He said that as you received from us in the past tense, how you ought to walk how you ought to please God. He's about to say something he's already said to them. Not only that, wait, let's be clear. He's asking and urging. He's emphatically repeating something he's already taught them. I find that interesting. I find that especially interesting because we know that this church was planted not over years, not even over months, but over weeks. So he is emphatically repeating something that he taught them when he only had weeks to be with them. So you're planting a church, you find out like the, the heat starts to get turned up and you've got to get pushed away. What are the things that you're going to teach, right? Obviously, you're going to teach faith in Jesus Christ. Obviously, you're going to teach like leaning on the Holy Spirit. Obviously, you're going to teach things like the greatest command is to love the Lord. The second one is like unto it, to love your neighbor. So obviously, you're going to do those, right? When are you going to get to sexual ethics? Like next semester? When are you going to get to the, the nitty-gritty of like living life with Christ? Is it is it you know, the 100 level is the gospel and you come back in the spring, in spring semester, we're going to talk about holy living. That's not at all what's happened here. It is as though faith in Jesus Christ and life in Jesus Christ are both on the midterm. You get it all in the first four weeks of your semester. I mean, you, it's not just here's the faith, it's here's the faith and here's the life that matches the faith. And they come immediately beside one another. He leaves this church in a matter of weeks. And they not only have Jesus, they have how to walk with Jesus. Which I find interesting. I find that is atypical to uh, my cultural religious rhythm. I find, uh, I, I'm not laying blame, I'm just thinking about myself and how, whether it was how I was raised or how I've changed to become, um, I put a highlight on, let's make sure they get the gospel, really get the gospel, and then uh, in the right time comes, I'll pray and find a way to kind of broach that subject. You know what I'm saying? And like different semesters, 
Or, you know, that's not even a different semester. It's an elective. Like, we'll just see if we ever get to... You know, the last thing you kind of want to do is right off the bat, giving them Jesus to come in and then crash into their sexual life. That is exactly what Paul did. It's exactly what he did. He's there for weeks. And he's asking and urging them on a matter he's already shared with them. In fact, he says in verse 2, he says, For you know the the instructions we gave you which is a pretty soft way to say that, okay? I'm, I'm not usually very picky, but I think this is a soft way to say it. That grammar and word choice is identical to the word choice that a commander would use to tell his subordinate to do something. A centurion would say to his soldier this. So if, you, if your centurion commander instructed you to do something, what would you call that? This sounds like instructions, like how to make a cake. That's not what's happening here. Paul is saying, I'm, just let's appreciate the importance here. Paul is asking them and urging them to recall something that he has already, let's just say it, commanded them about. How important do you think this is? Look, Christian living is not the second things. It's the second first things of the faith. Life in, like Jesus Christ, Savior, life in the Holy Spirit with Christ. They go together. They're like part of an Oreo. They're the same. They belong together. Which makes me wonder about the nature of our delay Maybe you're not like me. I suppose I'm not alone, though. The delay of, let me just get them the gospel, and then in the right time, we'll get to Christian living. Why that delay? I've wondered, is that delay an act of heresy? Am I not really giving someone good news when I give them faith in Jesus Christ without life in Jesus Christ? That has been an interesting question for me. I have become to wonder whether the, about the distance that we typically put between salvation and sanctification, just the real distance that we put between these, the importance that we lay in them or the way we talk about them. I wonder if it betrays a common view that you and I share that sees the life in Christ as drudgery, as the bad news side of the good news. If that's how we think, and I admit, at times, I can certainly say the historical record of my life would be that's how I thought. Uh, And I still think there are reflexes of that in my own life, that they just tell me, I do not either trust God or understand what he's doing. Do you think the Lord would tell you to do anything that's not for your own good? Do you think he would ever tell you to do one thing that is not for your good and his glory? then why would we hold off? Why are we pacing this stuff? It seems to Paul like life in Christ is the second first things of the faith. I wonder if sometimes we see sanctification as, you know, uh, religious, pious, homage, legalistic homage. It's It's penance for salvation. It's what we have to do in order to be saved. It's kind of, it's the bad news of the good news. That is not at all 
the reality. That is, that is the absolute incorrect view of what God's doing. When he calls you to live the way he, he's calling you, it's because he's trying to resurrect your life from the trash heap. That's what he's trying. It's what redemption feels like to come into contact with holy teaching. You, when you come to the Lord the first time, your life is in relative disorder. And because the Lord is a God of love and wants to put you in order and redeem his image in you, he immediately begins to push on the things that are not so that they become things that are. That's what he's doing. It's imminently practical. Notice what he says after that. So he says, I'm asking and urging you, so it's pretty important. He says, do things I've already told you to do. So he's repeating something. It's really important that he's repeating something that he commanded them. So it was important when they first heard it, and it's super important for him to emphasize what was important when they first heard him. And then he says this, as just as you are doing, You've realized how important this is? If you, had a, if you were a boss and you had a coworker who was doing the right thing, would you feel the need to ask and urge them just to do, keep doing what they were doing even though they're doing it? He's going to say to them, I know I told you what I told you, but I just want to come behind again and really, really say it. Even though you're already doing it, I just think it would be great if you did it more. That's what he's saying. There's no problem here. But it gives me the impression that these practical issues in the Christian life are big deals. Normally when he says this phrase, do it more and more, some Bibles have like abound all the more. I like the thought of abound aboundingly. He wants you to abound aboundingly on the principle. He's saying to the church that's already doing it, listen, I know you're doing it, but you haven't got the half of it unless you abound aboundingly in it. You're not going fast enough. Faster. Normally, abound, this idea of abound has a target in mind, like Paul will say, abound in faith, or abound in love, or abound in generosity, or abound in grace with one another. He'll say that this is a targetless abounding. He's just saying, life in Christ, I see you're doing it. I just want to ask you and urge you to keep doing it more and more. What I love about this passage is it's equally challenging to every person in this room. Every person in this room, right, to the most mature, to the least mature, to the oldest believer, to the newest believer, it, to every one of us, the teaching is the same, which is abound all the more in the Lord. Okay. We can move to the issue now, but I just I want us to appreciate its importance, the, the imminent practicality that Paul sees in it, how connected and essential he seems to feel it is, Uh, and make sure that we don't have some wrong thinking about right living. Okay, now let's look at verses 3 through 5. This is what he says. This is the will of God, your sanctification. 
that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. I'll stop there. We get to the subject of Christian living and we get this chief example, this kind of lead-off hitter, which is sort of how we handle our sexuality, to which is sort of a teaching of flee sexual immorality, abstain from sexual immorality, run from it. The different translations sort of grab all of this, stay away from it. I've tried to entertain... uh, So I know a little bit about sexual immorality, okay? So I've tried to anticipate some of the questions that people who have walked in my path would walk, and one of those is you saying, well, if he knew how hard it was for me in this age, he'd dot, dot, dot. You know, sometimes we make these qualifiers, which are subtle defense mechanisms. The truth of the matter is, Paul... The Greco-Roman world was a sexually dark place, comparable to now. If you read the historic record of sort of sexual life in that time, it's edgy. So I would say Paul probably is speaking the right way for our culture. But I will say this. Let's just say we're twice as bad back then. Do you actually think Paul would be twice as gentle? I think he would be twice as hard. Because once again, He's not trying to sell us Jesus. Jesus does not negotiate with us. He saves us. So Paul is running to the place of the greatest cultural brokenness with the greatest bullhorn to say this is the very place where your life needs saving and fixing and and where your life needs life the most. And asking that question of why do I put distance between the offering of Jesus and, hey, the nature of the Christian life? And I go, is that because I think that they find Jesus attractive but they don't find holy living attractive? And then I think, man, does that think, is that because I'm selling holiness as drudgery and not as the life-giving, aboundingly joyful experience? Over time, it's hard, but over time, it's life-giving. Is that what's going on? And I wonder to myself, when we... When we sell Jesus, we avoid encountering mainstream sins. That's how you know you're selling him in the marketplace, is you avoid these topics. When you're offering Jesus as salvation, you go to the place of brokenness. That's how you know. I think almost anyone here who has an abounding life in Christ would say, Jesus has met them in their brokenness and in their hardship and been most real. Here's another question you might ask, uh, which is an honest question, but has been used as a defense mechanism in the past. Well, what does he mean by sexual immorality? What's the list? And there is by the lists in Scripture. You could find lists. Uh, but I, and I want to be honest with you because we're going to get to the fence line. I think the fence line is, has some value, okay? So to understand 
things has some value, but I think by the most part, you, you know whether it's sexually immoral. I'll give you a test. If you have any questions, tell your mom at the dinner table. I'll solve it. If you don't want to do that, then you know the answer. So I don't think that's as complicated a question as it is. But in the, in the intention in Scripture here would be uh, all forms of sexual impurity. So it's not, it's not a narrow goal. It's a broad thought. He's saying flee from sexual impurity. It would be the gambit. I would encourage you, welcome that thinking in. But this is where we get uh, list-oriented. So sometimes our next step is to say, okay, then what's the list? What am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? What does purity look like? Is that impure? Well, is that impure? You know, you know in, when the dating world, can I go below the waist? Can I go on top of the shirt? You know, I'm just saying all that, all that stuff okay, are things that at one point I asked with a religious label on it. I built my fence. I've got to build my fence to make sure I stay inside of whatever that is. Somehow I'm constructing the field. Okay, now if there, and I should say, interestingly enough, the Old Testament scripture law does a pretty good job of drawing the lines. If you want to survey the perimeter of the field, the Old Testament scriptures will give that to you if you're really interested. And I would say the, uh, the Jewish tradition, like in the Mishnah or the Talmud that accompanies the Old Testament, man, they give a lot on this. Just today I was kind of freshening up on my Talmud and I got nervous that my internet was going to flag. That's how much they've dealt with this stuff. Like, Pastor Terry's going to write me and say, hey, you okay over there? It was Talmud, I promise. So the law is pretty clear, okay? And then over here, the tradition around the law was pretty in-depth, and Paul knew the law and the tradition about as good as any living person on the face of the earth. I might say on the entire region of Greece, there was not another human, you could argue, that knew the list better than Paul the apostle. There might not have been another person with a pulse that understood the list better than Paul the Apostle. So why doesn't he give it to us? This is a pretty good time for it. I'm ready for it. What does he say instead? You know what he says instead? He says this, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Instead of the list, which is readily available to him, he says instead of that, that you would learn to control your own body. That is so refreshingly different than the list. Not how far is too far. It's learn self-control. Value self-control. I wanted to say this. When we say how far is too far or is the, can we do that or is this all right? When we do that, I just want us to appreciate we are not actually leaning towards self-control. We're leaning away from self-control. 
what you're actually doing is trying to give as much room as possible to your sinful appetite. That's what you're trying to do. Anyone who's ever raised a child and has drawn a line in the sand knows exactly what's going on here. We, we have these ponies in our field. They have three ponies and six acres of grass, okay? We're constantly nervous that they're going to founder. There's so much grass around. You know where their footpaths are? All along the fence. They hang out all against the fence line looking at the grass on the other side of the fence. They have six acres. All the grass in the middle is pointless. They hang around the fence going, stupid, dumb grass is all trodden down. It's because what they're doing is they're kind of, they're going, well, what's the line? Well, I'm going to go right out to the line. Right out to the line. Don't you see, when, when you have what can I do and what can't I do in mind, you're staring at the fence line and you're staring at the stuff that's beyond the fence line, okay? The stuff you can't do. So you're continually putting in your mind things that you should not be doing or even thinking about versus when self-control is in your mind, you turn your back all the way around and you're staring at Jesus and you're working on yourself and actually the subject matter almost starts to become irrelevant. You start to see your lack of self-control in other areas of life. Pretty soon, you've long since left sex and you're on to things like, why did I eat that? Well, why did I fly off the handle with my kids? And all of a sudden, the Lord starts to show you, you have a self-control problem, not a sex problem. It has to do with where you're facing. Paul says, I could give you a list. I could describe the list. I could describe the perimeter all day long. But if you're interested in that, you're really interested in getting past it. And anyone can break out of a fence they put down. Verse 6, this is interesting what he says. So he builds on. So verse 5, that 4 and 5, control our own body, not live behind our passions, right? Grab the spirit-filled will of the new man and put it out in front of the appetite. That's Christian life. That's how you know you're living life in Christ is when the spirit-filled new man is trying to push beyond your appetite, Okay? Then we get to verse 6, and he says that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. By the way, there's another repetition of importance. I'm asking and urging you on things I commanded you to keep doing them. Remember the things I solemnly warned you about. Okay? But I just want us to track what just happened here. Verses 3 through 5, it's about self-control. Verses 6, he moves from your body to other people. He's warning them and reminding them that your sexual impurity harms other people. That's what it does. Your sexual impurity harms other people. When your appetite drives you, satisfying your hunger is what becomes important to you and you take advantage of people Manipulate people, disregard them, sin against them, grieve them, betray them, break trust with them. You name it, they happen. I, I don't know where I heard this, but I heard this as a young person growing up that pornography is like a victimless sin. It's just you. You can't be further from the truth. Like we, the one, maybe one benefit that our culture can see right now 
with the rampant rise of pornography is that it is a wildly dangerous act. So harmful to others. Paul says, self-control, work on self-control. Point your life to the Lord. You've been given the spirit, work on self-control. That's good in everything. And then he says, and love your neighbor. Recognize how you treat your neighbor. Do no harm on this matter. Put others before yourself. And there's this warning. God's the avenger, he says. It's not slight. God is the avenger. You cannot profess faith in Jesus Christ without taking the walk with Jesus in this life very carefully. That's what he's saying. I solemnly warned you on this matter. God is watching how you handle your life before him and how you handle your life with others. It's imminently practical and vital. And then he does something else in 7 and 8. It's really interesting. He says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It's interesting what Paul did. He starts in your body, and then he goes to people, and then he ends with himself. Here's what you can do. Be mindful of your brother and sister. And remember, I made you for a purpose. And when in purity, you find your greatest purposefulness in the Lord. In purity, you do. You become useful for him. That's why he gave you his spirit. Why give you his spirit if he's just going to save you in the last day? It's a waste of his spirit. It's good for you. It's good for others. And it's good with your life with God. That is so much better than the list. You know, when we live with a fence line, we set ourselves up for all kinds of trouble. All kinds of trouble. We set ourselves up for sin because we're never really dealing with a heart issue. We set ourselves up for an incorrect view of good and evil, right? When I'm inside the fence line, I must be good. When I'm outside the fence line, I'm terrible. When I'm inside the fence line, I'm good. When they're outside the fence line, they're terrible. The reality is, in my life, just confessionally, I kept moving my fence posts. So what used to be good and evil, I eventually said, this is an insufficiently small pen for me to play in. And I re, kind of reread the word, or uh, what is sexual impurity really? And pulled, and then reset the fit. You see how dangerous this is? That I begin to arbitrarily remove and redefine what good and evil is, when whether I'm good or evil is not even a subject in the message of the gospel. I'm saved by Jesus. That's the point. When you have a fence line, if you have a good day, you're good. If you have a bad day, you're evil. That is not, that is not the message of Jesus Christ. Nowhere in here can you find that. Jesus died for you in your sin so that he could immediately begin to work on your life in him, so that he, you might conform to his image, and in doing so, all the trash and disorder in your life would begin to fall away because he's not trying to save the old man, he's trying to make a new man. That's what he's doing. When we live by the fence line, we set ourselves up for a very unsatisfying walk with God. 
You're going you're gonna to then typify your faith as rules with no spirit, morality with no wholeness, religion with no change. That's what you're going to do. Or you can turn from your idols to serve the living and true God. That's what you can do. He's going to give you his spirit. And it's going to immediately express love and dissatisfaction with you. I love you, and that is not right. And you spend the rest of your life working with the Lord on that. I'll close with this. Holy living is hard work. I am certain this message, if it was any help, did not fix a single thing. It simply is calling us to the heart, the good, aboundingly fruitful hard work of walking with God the right way. Seek God, grow in self-control, look to the Holy Spirit, pray, confess your sins, love one another, take God seriously. These are the basics of the faith. May we pursue him as though he's imminently practical and vital. Amen.